sure that uh, as James and I were messing with that cable this morning, we probably made the problem worse. So try to bear with me as we continue here today. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 111, as we continue to work our way through this book of 1 Peter, this letter that Peter wrote to the church, to the tribes dispersed. Helps if I'm in the right book. Here we go. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to start this new chapter to today, but before we do that, let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we do not serve a dead God, one made by hands, but that we serve you, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, founder, creator, beginning and end, and you still speak. We thank you, Lord, for your word that has been given to us in the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for your word that, your very word that is spoken to us by your spirit, even today. As we lift ourselves or lay ourselves down before you, as we worship you and seek you, Lord, you are so faithful to speak to us. And that's our prayer today, Lord, that you would fill this place with your spirit, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd move us to passion and desire and hunger for the things of you, that we might have more of you in our lives, that our lives might be themselves you. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to set ourselves aside this morning to receive the word that you would give us, and Lord, that you would be glorified by its outcome. Father, as always, I pray that you'd smooth my wrinkles this morning and help me to say the right things, that you might get glory. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Reading 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, says there, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that through that that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a passage, huh? In it, I mean, if we really drink it in, it provides amazing substance. 
I always debate about, <clears throat> I wanted to begin today to, with, a, with an illustration, and it's an illustration that I've used way back, way back, um, but I want to use it again today. And it's a little bit of a long illustration, but I believe that it will be worth it as it illustrates to us the, place, the places or the place we need to go in our hearts if we want to live and serve and understand how we can arm ourselves like Jesus was armed. And I want to read to you a, a passage from a book. Um, some of you might be familiar with it, but I want to read a couple of pages. It is the first chapter of the book by Leif Enger called Peace Like a River. Does anybody know this book? Yeah, a few of you do. And a few of you know, who know this book well know that you're going to buckle up to read the first chapter because it is heart-rendering. But anyway, let me not build it up too much. It won't mean anything to you. I want to read you this because it tells a story or the beginning of a story that puts us, I think, if we let it, if we let the story, story kind of wash over us, it puts us in a place that we need to understand to understand this passage of Scripture. So let me read it to you. This chapter is entitled Clay. And I'm probably going to cry, doggone it. From my first breath in this world, all I wanted was a good set of lungs and the air to fill them with. Given circumstances, you might presume for an American baby of the 20th century, think about your own first gasp, a shocking wind rowling so easily down your throat and you still slipping around in the doctor's hands. How you yowled, not a thing on your mind but breakfast and that was on the way. When I was born to Helen and Jeremiah Land in 1951, my lungs refused to kick in. My father, <laughs> my father wasn't in the delivery room or even in the building. The halls of Wilson Hospital were close and short, and Dad had gone out to pace in the damp September wind. He was praying, rounding the block for the fifth time when the air quickened. He opened his eyes <laughs> and discovered he was running, sprinting across the grass toward the door. How'd you know? I adored this story, made him tell it all the time. God told me you were in trouble. Out loud? Did you hear him? Nope, not out loud, but he made me run, Reuben. I guess I figured it out on the way. I had, in fact, been delivered some minutes before. My mother was dazed, propped against soggy pillows, unable to comprehend what Dr. Animus Noakes was telling her. He still isn't breathing, Mrs. Land. Give him to me. <clears throat> to this day, I'm glad Dr. Noakes did not hand me over on demand. Tired as my mother was, who knows what she would have noticed. Instead, he laid me down and rubbed me hard with a towel. He pounded my back. He rolled me over and massaged my chest. He breathed air into my mouth and nose. My chest rose, fell with a raspy whine, stayed fallen. Years later, Dr. Noakes would tell my brother Davy that my delivery still disturbed his sleep. He'd never seen a child with such swampy lungs. When Dad skidded into the room, Dr. Noakes was sitting on the side of the bed holding my mother's hand. She was wailing. I picture her as an old woman here, which is funny since I was never to see her as one. And old Noakes was attempting to ease her grief. It was unavoidable, he was saying. Nothing could be done. Perhaps it was for the best. I was lying uncovered on a metal table across the room. Dad lifted me gently. I was very clean from all that rubbing, and I was gray and beginning to cool. A little clay boy is what I was. Breathe, Dad said. 
I lay in his arms. Dr. Noakes said, Jeremiah, it's been 12 minutes. Breathe! The picture I see is of Dad. Brown hair, short and wild, giving this order as if he expected nothing but obedience. Dr. Noakes approached him. Jeremiah, there would be brain damage now. His lungs can't fill. Dad leaned down, laid me back on the table, took off his jacket and wrapped me in it. A black canvas jacket with a quilted lining. I have it still. He left my face uncovered. Sometimes, said Dr. Noakes, there's something unworkable in one of the organs, a ventricle that won't pump correctly, a liver that poisons the blood. Dr. Noakes was a kindly and reasonable man. Lungs that can't expand to take air in. In these cases, said Dr. Noakes, we must trust the Almighty to do what is best. At which Dad stepped across and smote Dr. Noakes with a right hand so that the doctor went down and lay on his side with pupils unfocused. Mother cried out. Dad turned back to me, a clay child wrapped in a canvas coat, and said in a normal voice, Reuben Land, in the name of the living God, I am telling you to breathe. The truth is, I didn't think much on this until a dozen years later. Beyond, of course, savoring the fact that I'd begun life in a dangerous and thus romantic manner, when you are seven years old, there's nothing as lovely and tragic as telling your friends that you were just about dead once. It made my dad my hero, as you might expect, won him my forgiveness for anything that he might do forever. But until later events, it didn't occur to me just why I was allowed, after all, to breathe and keep breathing. The answer, it seems to me now, lies in the miracles. Let me say something about that word, miracle. For too long, it's been used to characterize things or events that, though pleasant, are entirely normal. Peeping chicks at Easter time, spring generally, a clear, a clear sunrise after an overcast week. A miracle, people say. As if they've been educated from greeting cards. I'm sorry, but nope. Such things are worth our notice every day of the week, but to call them miracles evaporates the strength of the world. Real miracles bother people. It's like strange, sudden pains unknown in medical literature. It's true. They rebut every rule all we good citizens take comfort in. Lazarus, Lazarus obeying orders and climbing up out of the grave. Now there's a miracle, and you, can't, and, you can be a, and you can bet it upset a lot of folks who were standing around at the time. When a person dies, the earth is generally unwilling to cough him back up. A miracle contradicts the will of the earth. My sister, Sweetie, who often sees to the nub, offered this. People fear miracles because they fear being changed, though ignoring them will change you also. Sweetie said another thing, too, and it rang in me like a bell. No miracle happens without a witness. Someone to declare, here's what I saw. Here's how it went. Make of it what you will. The fact is, the miracles that sometimes flowed from my father's fingertips had few witnesses but me. Yes, enough people saw strange things that Dad had become the subject of a kind of misspoken folklore in our town, but most ignored the miracles as they ignored Dad himself. I believe I was preserved through those 12 airless minutes in order to be a witness. And as a witness, let me say that a miracle is no cute thing, but more like the swing of a sword. If he were here to begin the account, I believe Dad would say what he said to Sweetie and me on the worst night of all of our lives. We and the world, my children, will always be at war. Retreat is impossible.
arm yourselves. We in the world, my children, will always be at war. <laughs> Retreat's impossible. Arm yourselves. When I read the opening lines of the passage today, and I read those same, worm, so those same words, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Immediately I thought of that story. The mystery that we live in today as God's church, as his body that remains on this earth to execute the ministry of reconciliation. And we're given confusing orders sometimes, you know, like the, all the Beatitudes. And we're, we're, we're told here, even in this passage, to arm ourselves with suffering. Just like Christ armed himself with the same mindset of suffering. And we take it all in and we look at our lives and we look at the things that come against us. And we realize that we find ourselves in a situation where we are the stewards of this immense, unfathomable, immutable, unstoppable, but very hard to understand this grace the weapon. The only path to victory has been given to us. How do we take that which has been given to us, this great grace, this powerful weapon, if you will, if you're willing to call it that, and wield it to use it for its proper purpose that we do well by the owner, the one that gave it to us in the first place. You know, sometimes you find ourselves in situations where we're given a little bit of something that belongs to somebody else, and we're expected to do something with it. You know, kind of like maybe it starts when you're young, and mom gives you a $5 bill, go to the store and get such and such, and then come back. I, I, that, <laughs> sorry, Jeb, I'm going to pick on you real quick, because I don't remember the details, but I do remember Jeb was sent to the store here a while back, and he came back with the thing that was asked for, but he also came back with a little reward for himself for, uh, for going to the store. I had money left over, so I got myself this a prize. Sometimes it seems to happen that way, even with God's grace, though we've been given this great thing, and we go and we try to use it the way that will make our master happy. Sometimes we misunderstand the assignment a little bit, and sometimes we just outright foul up. But maybe your mom gave you $5. Maybe you've been given an important title. Maybe you've, given the, you've been given the ability to actually speak for someone else sometimes. That's, an, that's, that's a heavy task, isn't it, sometimes when you have to, you put, you're find yourself in a situation where your words, you're speaking on behalf of another. And so what comes out of your mouth, you have to be careful because it doesn't just reflect on you, but it reflects on somebody with a higher power, somebody hopefully that you respect that has, that has given you that voice or that authority or those resources. So we are carriers of this grace. We seek to understand it and wield it in a way that gives God glory. And <clears throat> it seems contradictory sometimes, but how Peter, how Peter phrases this in this passage, arm yourselves, therefore since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves 
with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, church, what I hope that we get from that illustration that I gave you from that book is I think it's the same idea that Peter holds out for us here. And the same thing that Christ himself modeled to us as even as he laid himself down on the cross. Is that we will never be able to win until we get ourselves to the point of nothing left to lose. It's all been put aside. To borrow from another illustration, there's, a, there's an ancient book. It's called The Way of the Samurai. It's written by one of these mighty, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know if they did that. But, but uh, by an ancient uh, Eastern warrior. He wrote this. He said, The way of the samurai is in desperateness. Ten men or more cannot kill such a man. Common sense will not accomplish great things. Simply become insane and desperate. In the way of the samurai, if one uses discrimination, he will fall behind. One needs neither loyalty nor devotion, but simply to become desperate in the way. Loyalty and devotion are of themselves within desperation. Now, was this a follower of Christ? No, but he understood a thing or two about battle, didn't he? About coming, to into, coming into great effectiveness in a fight. Now, we are in a fight. Just like in the words of that novel, we in the world will always be at war. Why? Why will we always be at war? Because God seeks to offer life and redemption, and the enemy seeks to take life. Seeks to thwart redemption. And he's a nasty one. Nastier than you can think. Nastier than you can think. And even in the church, even, you know, okay, so let's be real for a second, you know. We all try to do our best. At least we say we do. We try to put on the notion that we try to do our best to live, you know, live clean, to, to do what's right, to tell the truth. But even, this, even these things that seem so dirty and foul, you know, this list that Peter gives us, you know, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry, you know, we make that list and we set it over here and be like, oh, that's terrible, you know? That's, that's awful, worldly, ungodly stuff that happens in the dark. But those same forces are very much alive right here in us. If we were to deny that, just say, no, I don't ever struggle with any kind of temptation. Well, kind of a, is that probably in a truthful statement, is it? And sometimes we feed those appetites a little bit, you know? Even in attitudes, you know, I, I tell you what, I had a garage band in high school, Nick was there, you know, <laughs> and uh, we, we would just go every night and just 
play loud music and rah, 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 you know, and it was a good feeling. It was that, you know, that sort of, I don't know how you think of it, but man, when you're just rocking out and it's loud and you're young and full of energy and rage and angst and everything, that feels real good. You know, you feel like you're accomplishing something in the world because you're just making a lot of noise. But you know, I never really totally killed that off. And there's a part of me that still likes that sort of like, make a lot of noise, you know, stick it to the man and, and re be rebellious, be the punk rocker at heart. And, you know, I've always kind of fed that along because I thought, well, I don't ever want to lose my edge, you know. I don't ever want to lose my fire. But it, in effect, you know, what it's made me do is be rebellious and contrarian. Ask my mom. Picking fights for no reason. I'm not as bad as some. I've gotten better, hopefully. I don't know. Now I'm just justifying. But you know, little ways that we feed this rebellion in our hearts, it's the same thing that drives us to all the uglier, more blatant sins. We are very much under attack in this world because the enemy wants to steal from us the presence of God. Wants to steal it away. The last thing our enemy wants is for us to be able to hear God's voice and act on it. And in order to do that, in order to hear God's word, hear God's spirit and his word, and to live it out, is we have to make space for it. And when we, when we are full of, what, how did you say it this morning, Nick? You had a great phrase. When we are just continue to continuously fill ourselves with emptiness, we're too full to hear God's voice, to act on it. We are called to be holy. That isn't even really what I was going to talk about today. But it's true. We're called to be holy, set aside, clean, open so that we can hear God's voice and act on it. And the enemy is constantly launching attacks at us. And he does it with our own fleshly appetites. And, but he also does it through others, you know. It says right here in this passage that when you abstain from certain things, there's going to be people in the world that, that make fun of us for it. It says, uh, how was it? Hold on, I found it. It says when you, when you uh, it says in verse 4, verse, or chapter 4, 4, it says, With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You know, they, he's talking about they, as in the, the people of the world, the Gentile, uh, people that disregard God and everything about him. We have opposition everywhere we go. If it doesn't come from within, it comes from without, is all I'm trying to say. Now, we do have the promise here that says, you know, but they will give an account. That's, an, a, promise. That's a promise for us, right? Because we fight and we struggle and we know. We can know from this scripture even of itself that, that they will give an account to he who is ready, ready to judge the living and the dead. Jesus himself. And we're given the promise that the end of all things is at hand. You know, it's almost over. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
How can we really capitalize on that promise, though? Because after all, when was this written? If somebody were to tell you today, hey, the end is almost near, the end is coming, you might be encouraged. But this guy said the end is here how long ago? Huh. Now, I'm not saying it's not true. What I'm saying is sometimes those promises are hard to grasp a hold of, hard to make real in our lives, hard to capitalize on when we are under attack. You know, for example, if I have a, a particular sin that I just I can't seem to shake, if I knew that all I had to do was avoid that sin until tomorrow and everything was going to be good, Christ the judge, the, the king was going to come back and make all things right, not only free me from that forever, but also to put down those who continue to try to get me. It'd be easy, wouldn't it? So how do we do it? How do we grasp a hold of the promise? How do we win? Arm yourselves in the same way Christ did, with the same mindset. Later on down in this passage, Peter gives us instructions that we can apply. Now there's something to be said, and there's certainly thought and discussion to be had about how we can engage in the same mindset as Jesus, arming ourselves um, with suffering in the flesh. That's, a, that's a, a something that we've been talking a little bit about in men's group, and I'm excited to explore it. There's, there are benefits and dividends that we can get our head around the idea that all suffering is not bad and should not be avoided at all costs. But look at this next part. Above all, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's varied grace. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Whoever speaks... As one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves. As one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything. God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion. Forever and ever. Church. I haven't fully understood this and made this real in my life. So don't think I'm sitting up here on a high horse. Trying to get you to do something that I can do. Whatever. Right? There is freedom. There is power in becoming truly and totally empty of self. And that's what we're called to do. Just in the way that we... You know, I, I, I'm, I, I apologize that I shouted when I read that book right at the time when the mic like clicked back on and I watched two-thirds of you go boom in your chair but I wanted to encapsulate what battle looks like when a man has nothing left to lose nothing left to lose 
there is freedom, there is power, the power of Christ, when we become totally empty of self. A couple applications quick and we'll be done. One, if there's something between you and me, okay? Or maybe not you and me, maybe there's something, there's something uh, negative, some, some kind of relational conflict that's come between you and somebody that you love. Okay? Happens all the time, right? Some kind of relational problem has occurred. Maybe it's a misunderstanding, maybe it's pride, maybe, it doesn't matter. If you engage that person in order to try to fix that problem, and you try to keep self, sorry, self intact at the same time, how's that likely to go? Let's just be real. It's not going to go good. It's not going to go good. Those of you who have been married a long time know that if you just both continue to give each other the silent treatment and never apologize, even if you're not really truly sorry, but at least to say enough to say, hey, I'm sorry, let's work this out. Sometimes you can say it without meaning it, and it's still not a lie. You just have to work toward it a little bit. Am I wrong? Am I, I don't know. Anytime something comes between us, if we try to preserve self-life, we can't bridge that gap back again. Because that's what got in, got in the way in the first place. If self-preservation is dead, did you know there is no place for the enemy to get his hooks in you? If self-preservation is dead, there is no place that the enemy can get his hooks in you. None. Now, it might, a requisite might be that you might have to humble yourself. Hmm. Surprise, surprise, right? What did Jesus do? It tells us here, church, to love. Because love covers, covers over a multitude of sins. If we're willing, if we're willing, all of us together, if we endeavor together and, and we commit to the idea that I will not let my pride, no matter how hard you offend me, I will not let that ever get in the way of my love for you. If we all committed to that, do you know that the enemy would have no foothold to divide us whatsoever? How do we get there? Well, it starts with looking at those areas where you've been hurt. Looking at areas that somebody said something that hurt your feelings or, or double-crossed you. Or maybe there's, it might just be a misunderstanding, but areas where you've hurt and you've allowed there to be like a separation between you and someone else. And you have to just take your portion of that and put it down the garbage disposal. You know, get rid of it. Take your portion of it and just get rid of it. I know it's easier said than done, but we're called to help each other with that. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live. We don't have to defend self anymore. We can love. We can love and overlook all the shortcomings and overlook all the harm that people have done to us. That's the mindset that we're supposed to have. And we'll find 
that when we have nothing left to lose, life gets really easy. (laughs) It gets really easy when we don't have to continuously defend ourselves anymore. It's a light and easy burden, just like Jesus said. Two things. That was one. Two more. Hebrews chapter 12 encourages us and says this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. <laughs> How true. All we have to do is consider Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you grow faint-hearted of setting self aside to reconcile, to love, to bridge gaps, if you get tired of it, all you have to do is think about Jesus. Did he have cause to stand up for himself? Yeah, he did. Did he suffer unjustly? Yeah, he did. To the point of death. If we consider that, it does Help us to not be weary. Finally. You remember back in school? Maybe you don't. Anybody? Who played kickball in school? Or baseball? Okay. Just about everybody. Or maybe not in school, but you played it. You remember that kid that he would go up to bat or or, uh, kick? whichever it was, and the pitcher, whoever was, was, throw, was throwing the pitch or was, you know, doing the kickball thing, de- delivered the pitch, and the kid fumbles in some way, you know, he like kicks, a, like stumbles or, or misses or whatever, and the most annoying thing a kid could say after he just flubbed that, the hit or the kick, the most annoying thing he could say was, wait, I want to do over, I wasn't ready. Oh, that would get under my skin. I want to do over. I wasn't ready. (laughs) We don't want to be that kid. We don't want to be that kid. We have to take on the, the thinking of Jesus now. We have to do the work now. We have to choose hard things now. Because there will come a time when you will have a critical moment. It might be the, the critical moment when you stand before God and have and the, the judge of all things judges you. Or it might be a critical time when you come up to a, a very critical juncture in a relationship. If you're not ready to engage that with the love of Jesus, with the same mindset of he who suffered, there might not be a do-over. A critical relationship could be severed. Churches split. Marriages end. Kids abandon their home, and they never talk to their parents again. It doesn't ever have to be that way for us, though. If we prepare, if we do things now, if we take on the mind of Christ... Glory, peace, like a river. We must. Let me back up. We will always be at war. 
Retreat's impossible. We must arm ourselves with the thinking of Jesus. Here in just a second, I'm going to pray. We're going to have the elders come up and participate in communion today. And before we do so, I just wanted to note, you know, that this is one of those times when we get to do a physical activity that represents a spiritual truth. It's not just something we do once a month or just a, a you know, a, a, an empty routine or, or anything. This bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us, for you, for me. The, the cup represents his blood that was spilled. And he said, you know, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. What does that mean? That means us becoming one with Christ. His body, his blood coming, coming into us to give us life, his life, his spirit, his substance. You know, on a physiological level or a, a nutritional level, these things go into our bodies and they feed us. They give us energy. They give us life. Well, think of it in those terms. Taking in the substance of Christ to give us life. To become part of us and us part of him. As we participate in this today, let it be a real act of choosing him and saying, yes, I want to take on your mindset. I want more of you in me. I give myself to you. For that is the way to victory. That's how we arm ourselves to a point where no enemy, spiritual or physical, can take us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for your word, for the way that you lead us and teach us and show us the path to victory. Father, I pray today that you would be at work in the hearts of your people to once again make real the promise and the power of who you are in our lives. Help us to deny ourselves, whether that comes with, in the form of pride or fleshly appetites or whatever form it takes that comes against us to steal our life away. I ask, Lord, that you would, by your presence, come and safeguard your church today. Help us to make a sincere appeal and a sincere union with you this day. In your name, amen.